Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week, our theme is friends and neighbors. And when we started working on this show, we put a request out on WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN, to see what you, our listeners, had to say about your neighbors. And we were surprised by the intensity of the responses. People told us they were better people for having their neighbors in their lives. That they, quote, remind us of a culture where people care about who you are and not what you do. One respondent even said her neighbor Jane is the epitome of kindness and generosity. Well, after getting all these glowing reports about the people in your neighborhoods, it got us really fired up for today's show. So we hit the streets to bring you stories about all the different roles neighborliness plays in our lives, whether it's across the backyard fence, on a battlefield, even on the basketball court. First, though, last week we whisked you away to Clark County, Virginia, home of Holy Cross Abbey, a 62-year-old Trappist monastery in the midst of some major changes. See, the Abbey's been losing money. And men. While Holy Cross housed about 60 men in its heyday, now it's down to 13, and their average age is about 75. So the monastery's been taking steps to secure its financial and social future in more sustainable ways. It's hoping to rely less on its fruitcake bakery and beef cattle operation and more on one of Holy Cross's greatest natural resources. The land. 1,200 acres of land, to be precise. And this Holy Cross resident? I am Joseph Ventu. Or Brother Joseph. I'm 75-year-old, original, I'm from Vietnam. Go so far as to compare that land to gold. Just like a Middle East, they have oil that gold for them. But the key, he says, is using the Abbey's gold appropriately, which is why he's so excited about two brand new efforts here at Holy Cross. First, a green cemetery, which doesn't do embalming or use non-biodegradable burial materials. And second, a fruit and vegetable farm run by the Abbey's Loudoun County neighbors. All right, so we're getting yellow, right? Yeah, I've never had a yellow zucchini. Just across the Blue Ridge Mountains. Look at this one. Great Country Farms. Oh, wow. That one got a little bit... This one got a little bit over. How big would you say that is? I don't even know. It's probably... It's pretty giant. Isn't that crazy? That would definitely be a lot of zucchini bread. (laughs) Kate Zershmead co-owns Great Country Farms with her husband, Mark. I'm part of the Zershmead family, and we have been farming in Loudoun for about 40 years and are starting here at the monastery in Clark and looking forward to a long relationship. And as it happens, that relationship came about in a most serendipitous way. One of our lifelong friends has been providing hospice care here to one of the older monks. And when she heard that the monks were looking to expand into growing crops and trying to have some sustainable use of their farm, said, hey, you know, you need to talk to the Zershmin family. They're right across the river. They're 10 minutes away. And Mark and Kate were the fourth family that we had spoken to about this idea. Ed Leonard is the chief sustainability officer at Holy Cross Abbey. We were looking in Maryland. We were looking in Pennsylvania. And you're looking all over the place. And it was so incredible that Mark and Kate were in our backyard, and we didn't know it. What's also incredible is that Mark and Kate had actually been seeking more land at the time. And what's more, Ed says? They were compatible with all the values the monks had. They understand the value of treating this land gently. Now, while the fruits and veggies grown here aren't certified organic... 
Kate says Great Country Farms does apply more sustainable practices here, like using fish emulsion fertilizer. Instead of, you know, chemical fertilizers. Growing plants on plastic. So we use a suppression technique rather than spraying an herbicide every week on all of the fields. And using pesticides on an as-needed basis. Rather than every Monday you nuke the squash and every Tuesday you nuke the orchard and things like that. While Holy Cross Abbey has been providing the land, Great Country Farms has been providing the labor and infrastructure. So things like putting up deer fencing, tilling the land, and doing all the planting and harvesting. But instead of Holy Cross getting a flat rental fee, it gets a percentage of Great Country Farms' revenue. Though, as Ed Leonard points out, there is no annual contract. And so we're doing cost sharing with the Zurchmeads. For instance, these 2,000 apple trees that they planted on Good Friday, we're splitting the cost of that. We don't think that they should have to financially bear the entire burden and risk. So with an annual contract, um, you know, that was just too much to ask. And though the partnership is no more than a few months old, Ed says it's looking more and more like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Kate Zurchmead agrees. You know, we would love to be in it for the long haul. And to me, if somebody says plant apple trees, which have a, you know, 20-year harvest lifespan, um, that bodes well for for a long-term relationship. Great Country Farms started planting on this mile-and-a-half stretch beside the Shenandoah River in March. And because this land is so loamy and rich, while you usually wouldn't harvest something like squash until July... We started the first week of June this year. ...which has been a pleasant, if profuse, surprise for Great Country Farms' 2,000-some CSA customers. These community-supported agriculture members order produce preseason and then get 20 deliveries between June and October. We've been inundating people with squash this year because they're just producing like crazy. And so one of our members has actually started a um, 104 days of squash challenge. He's like taken on a blog where he's going to post up a new squash recipe for 104 days just to deal with the volume that's coming. (laughs) But the CSA folks aren't the only ones who get to partake in that volume. Do you see any plans of providing food to the monastery? Well, right now we do a regular stop by at the monastery for the monks themselves. Who, by the way, are all vegetarian. So last week we dropped off some apples and apricots and squash. And I think they're all enjoying having some fresh produce from their own land. And in the case of Brother Joseph, anyway, Kate's definitely right. He's been enjoying a lot more produce since becoming a monk nine years ago. And now, bonus, it'll be local. So you are 75? Oh, yes, I am. You don't look like you're 75. You know what? Because I eat bean. (laughs) (laughs) Bean is my favorite. (laughs) Before I enter here, I don't know that that food well. (laughs) It's just beef steak or some other one, McDonald's or something like that. Doesn't have bean at all. But over here, I like it. That's why I feel young. Of course, the monastery and its monks aren't actually getting any younger. So Brother Joseph hopes the farm at Holy Cross will help his beloved home live on, both by raising revenue and by making the abbey more appealing to a younger generation. This one, no problem. We cannot solve by ourselves. In-house now, we are old, so we have to, to need outside come to help us, to make an environment for a newcomer to accept the life over here. For now, Brother Joseph says he's praying for a positive future, one that's bright, one that's beautiful, and, just like the land itself, one that brings forth a bounty of gold.
To learn more about Holy Cross Abbey and Great Country Farms, including how you can become a member of their CSA, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So we just visited a monastery run by Trappist monks. Now we're going to spend some time with Lutherans and Presbyterians and Jews, even an evangelical Ethiopian congregation. See, once upon a time, the majority of churches, synagogues, mosques, and other places of worship were one religion, one building operations. But here in the D.C. area, that's increasingly changing, as people of different faiths share the same space. Heather Taylor did some trekking around the region and brings us this story on religious intermingling among local congregations. If you enter the elegant stone church at the leafy intersection of Gallatin and 16th Street Northwest on a Sunday— you might expect to hear traditional Protestant hymns streaming out of the main sanctuary. After all, the sign carved into stone announces your arrival at Christ Lutheran Church, a member of the denomination founded by Martin Luther in the 1500s. But actually, the music played and the language spoken will depend entirely on the time of your visit. At 8.15 a.m., you're likely to hear something like this. At 10.30, it sounds like this. And by five in the afternoon, you might hear the expressive up-tempo sound of a full band, complete with a guitar-strumming vocalist. Christ Lutheran Church is just one of many D.C. area churches renting space to other religious groups. In a period of belt tightening and with mainline Protestant membership in decline, renting space can provide income to cover the cost of a church's upkeep. A sudden trend brought on by the recent recession? Maybe not. Since I've been here, we've always had one to two congregations sharing space with us. That's Reverend Renata Eustace, who's been pastor at Christ Lutheran Church for 11 years. Throughout that time, there has been the Medhani Alem Orthodox Church, which is from Ethiopia. They begin at 5.30 in the morning, so they finish with the space around 9 o'clock. The Christ Lutheran Church congregation occupies the space between 10 a.m. and noon, and by late afternoon... Another congregation is getting ready for worship. That's a Latino congregation called uh, Vision de Fe, Vision of Faith. They they worship in the space beginning at about three o'clock on Sunday and are there till seven. But is renting religious space solely a question of economics? Edward Taylor isn't so sure. He's pastor of Sixth Presbyterian Church of Washington D.C. So a question, let me say, of stewardship, which means how well do we use? The, the things that we've been blessed with. And I think the, the founders, I think, had the idea of the, the church. The building would be a tool for ministry. It's just not the ministry only of Sixth Presbyterian Church. His church shares space with the Bethel Evangelical Ethiopian Fellowship. But while economics may not be the sole reason for sharing space, it's certainly a great benefit, says Craig Sparks pastor of the Columbia United Christian Church, Sparks shares space with at least four other congregations at the Meeting House, an interfaith center in Columbia, Maryland. We have 70 people, 75 people on a Sunday, relatively small congregation, and we have access to a 32,000 square foot facility that we could never afford. In addition to economic benefits, some rental relationships can lead to defining moments in the lives of the congregations involved. 
That was the case for Bradley Hills Presbyterian Church and Bethesda Jewish Congregation in Bethesda, Maryland. In 1964, 35 Jewish families got together to rent space from Bradley Hills. While that relationship on one level is a tenant relationship, they pay rent, it's a uh, much more than that. That's Pastor David Gray of Bradley Hills Presbyterian Church. His counterpart, Rabbi Elhanan Sonny Schnitzer at Bethesda Jewish Congregation, agrees. Two congregations have a common philosophy of spiritual siblings sharing sacred space. It's just like a family. Sometimes there are issues that arise, but because you're family, you always work them out, and we always have. And over 40-plus years, the relationship has grown into a partnership. In 2003, the two congregations formalized that partnership by jointly signing a covenant to reflect their common purpose. We've gotten very good at accommodation. The church may be having a Good Friday service on a Friday night, which is the Jewish Sabbath, and we'll move to the other end of the building, or they'll move to the other end of the building. It's not a question of who gets precedent. It's a question of just how we work out the parking. <laughs> like her colleagues, Pastor Renata Eustace of D.C.'s Christ Lutheran Church considers these partnerships more than worth it. I really, really value that, that we use the space this way. We have a beautiful building. Um, this is our greatest physical resource, and um, the idea that, that God is being praised throughout the day on Sunday and then on Saturday evening as well is um, a huge thing for me. I really feel like we're being faithful when we're doing that. Being faithful, being neighborly, and perhaps developing new friendships across traditional religious boundaries. I'm Heather Taylor. After the break, we'll meet the friends and neighbors who've dubbed themselves the first ladies of their local basketball league. We were the first ladies, year after year, game after game, travel after travel. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our theme is friends and neighbors. And in just a bit, we'll find out how basketball is creating special bonds in one D.C. neighborhood. But first, we turn to a major event that divided friends and neighbors, sometimes whole families. It was the Civil War. And we're just weeks away from the 150th anniversary of the Second Battle of Manassas, which took place right here in our region and left more than 20,000 troops killed, wounded, or missing. Fast forward to today, and we see a very different battle underway at Manassas. And that's the topic of our weekly transportation segment from A to B. The state of Virginia plans to build a four-lane highway that'll run past the western edge of the Manassas National Battlefield Park. And as Martin DeCaro reports, those plans are sparking an increasingly heated war of words. All right, so where are we headed? We're going to head into the battlefield to the uh, 
When you pass by the open fields and split rail fences that stretch over seven square miles at the Manassas National Battlefield Park, you can picture the massive armies that clashed in late August 150 years ago. Confederate troops formed up on these grounds in this land here. You can imagine General Longstreet's 30,000 troops crashing into the Union flank like a hammer on the third and decisive day of the battle. The current Battle of Manassas is not as dramatic, and while it also involves maps and roads, the crack of musket fire has faded into history. The new battle is one of competing visions of Northern Virginia's future. The Park Service should do everything it can to protect the integrity of the entire battlefield and the entire landscape, including the full landscape of the Second Battle of Manassas. Stuart Schwartz is the executive director of the Coalition for Smarter Growth. He drove us around the battlefield to point out where the state plans to build what he calls an outer beltway, a four-lane divided highway from Route 7 in Loudoun County to I-66 in Prince William. It would run right past the western edge of the battlefield. Virginia officials say the new road is needed to reduce congestion and better connect residents to their jobs. But Schwartz says it'll turn this hallowed ground into a median strip in a sea of development. You can end up with the worst of all worlds, which is a new highway, more development sparked on the western and northern boundaries of Manassas Battlefield, more traffic, and political pressure to never close the roads to the park. The current proposal would pave over four acres of battlefield land on the periphery of the property, away from where most of the fighting took place. And imagine the precedent. The Park Service would potentially be agreeing that highway agencies can take historic battlefield land or other park land for highway projects. Schwartz says the road does not even address the Virginia Department of Transportation's own priorities. First of all, we've shown that, and their, their own studies show, that the dominant traffic problem is east-west commuting on I-66, Route 50, and other such roads. Since resources are tight, we need to spend every last dime on, on helping commuters on those corridors. This summer is critical to the future of the project. Virginia officials are negotiating with the National Park Service on what amounts to a trade-off. The highway would be built on the battlefield's outskirts in exchange for closing the two main roads that currently carry commuters through the park. Manassas Battlefield Superintendent Ed Clark supports this plan. It would enable us to remove all of the traffic, as you know, most folks in northern Virginia are aware of how serious the traffic is along the I-66 corridor. That traffic really does detract significantly from the battlefield experience. Clark is also lobbying for a separate project that the Park Service has been pushing for decades, the Manassas Battlefield Bypass. It would partly overlap the proposed four-lane highway with the same goal of moving traffic around the battlefield, not through it. It becomes a balancing act between what you're giving up and what you're gaining. For every salvo Schwartz fires, the man who leads Virginia's Department of Transportation has a return volley. Secretary Sean Connaughton says the new highway would help the battlefield. That unfortunately no one goes to because of the enormous transportation problems getting to the battlefield. And once you're there, you can't even cross the street at the battlefield because of the heavy congestion. To the charge that the new road would spur unwanted development and sprawl, Connaughton says, get real. The development is there today. This is not the 1980s or 70s. And this is not pristine farmland. There are tens of thousands of homes already there along this right-of-way. Don't believe him? Connaughton says, check for yourself. I really, really encourage folks to go on to Google Satellite, go on to Google Maps, look at the map, look at reality, what's there today. The growth is there. 
Just as the warring sides 150 years ago both claimed to be fighting for freedom, the two sides today both claim they're fighting for the same thing, the future of Manassas and better transportation in Northern Virginia. There are no Stonewall Jacksons or heroic stands this time around, but the outcome of this battle will bring lasting changes to historic ground nonetheless. I'm Martin DeCaro. We head from Manassas back to the district now and up to Children's National Medical Center in northwest D.C. Children's cares for hundreds of children and teens who are HIV positive. That's where Kavitha Cardoza headed for the second part in our series on children with HIV and the challenges they face. And please note the names in this story have been changed to protect privacy. Here at Children's National Medical Center, Dr. Kathy Ferrer treats children who have HIV. Today she's examining Simone, an adorable three-year-old with her mother. How have you been since the last time I saw you? Wonderful. Very good. And you, how are you doing? Can I get a 10? Yeah. There hasn't been a baby born with HIV in D.C. since 2009 because of more testing and medical advances. If a mother who's HIV positive takes her medications regularly, there's a less than 1% chance of the virus being transmitted. But it isn't easy taking several pills every day, even as an adult. Simone's mother squirts the liquid medicines into her child's mouth twice a day using a syringe. Do you like your medicines? No. Why don't you like them? Because it's nasty. Because it's nasty. Simone doesn't know she has HIV. Doctors here usually tell children when they're 12. While HIV is incurable, doctors emphasize children with the virus can lead long and productive lives on medication. If they take it. Simone does everything she can not to. Spit throwing it up, fighting me, throwing the syringes across the room. Syringe, yes. You are the only three-year-old that knows how to say the word syringe. I tell people what we used to do as a clinical service is go to funerals because there were so few drugs. That's Dr. Lawrence D'Angelo, who works with HIV-infected adolescents at Children's. He says now there are lots of different medications available. But unfortunately, we have a lot of young people who will end up succumbing to this illness if not during their teenage years, certainly during their adult years, unless we can get them to be adherent to medications. Getting patients to take their medicines is what doctors call HIV's Achilles heel. D'Angelo says children often feel worse when they're on HIV medication because of the side effects, and there are no immediate consequences of skipping a dose. If you're a diabetic and you don't take your insulin, within 24 hours, you're going to be sick. With this illness... If you don't take your medicine, you may get sick, but it can be five years from now, 15 years from now. Ferrer sees the effects of children not taking their medication. They may not grow as tall, they may have trouble processing information or developing their fine motor skills, and they are far more susceptible to infections. But Ferrer hopes if she emphasizes it enough, as Simone grows up, it'll become second nature. And so why do you take your medicines? I'll be healthy. Ferrer says HIV medications need to be taken 95% of the time, otherwise the virus can become resistant. Once you have a resistant virus in your sexually active teenager, guess what's being transmitted? And so it's a huge public health issue for D.C. 
Michael Coffin heads the Youth Outreach Program for the D.C. Department of Health. He says almost all new infections now are spread through unprotected sex. Coffin says while only 0.1% of children and teens in D.C. have HIV, it's an area of concern because of the high rates of sexually transmitted diseases. Chlamydia and gonorrhea, where our infection rates among all of young people is over 6%. When we go out and do screening at a high school, our average rates range from 9 to 14%. Coffin says while these STDs are curable, they speak to risky behaviors. Right now, their population group doesn't have a lot of HIV in it, but as they grow older or if they have sexual activity with older people where there is much more HIV present, then their risk of getting HIV infection, if their behavior doesn't change, is serious. At Children's National Medical Center, a multidisciplinary team covers every aspect of care. HIV is more common in poor areas of the city. And Angela Wilburn, a social worker, says these families often have additional challenges to overcome. Sometimes families have challenges with paying the electricity bill and then their medication needs to be refrigerated. If you have any kind of insect infestation, that could impact their immune system. Keith Selden, who works with at-risk teens, says often even when teens know they have HIV, they don't come in for treatment. Sometimes they're in denial, sometimes they don't want to take responsibility, and sometimes they just don't want to be different from their friends. So for a young person who doesn't want to deal with it, and the only time they think about it is when they come to the clinic, guess what? They just won't come to the clinic. And the stigma attached to the illness is a huge barrier. Every healthcare professional here can list stories of children being rejected for being HIV positive. A child whose sister refuses to hug her, a teen who gets beaten up every day at school by former friends. A parent set a plate aside. This is your plate. This is your cup. This is your silverware. And that's the only one that the young person could use. This is a heavy burden to bear, says Donna Marshall, a psychologist at the hospital. She says people with HIV are two to three times more likely to have depression. Marshall says it's difficult enough for adults. Imagine what a young person goes through. They don't have years and years under their belt of how do you cope with major life-changing news. They haven't been on the planet as long. 18-year-old Cheryl has HIV. She still remembers how her best friend in middle school reacted to her diagnosis. She didn't say anything. She just kind of stayed away from me. And I asked her, why are you acting shady towards me? And she told me it was because I had HIV. Cheryl says she tries hard to focus on her blessings and her future, including her plans for college. She says she'd like to tell other teens with HIV it does get better. Be patient. And what do you think will be waiting at the end if you're patient? Happiness. It's often an uphill climb for the healthcare team at Children's National Medical Center, trying to get young patients to believe HIV is not a death sentence. It's a chronic condition that can be managed. Angela Wilburn says eventually children, like Cheryl, realize they can live happy lives and that HIV does not define them. When you actually see this child get it, that they can have a life that they love, it's glorious. So Wilburn and her colleagues continue to coax their patients to appointments, remind them to take their medications, and encourage them to follow their dreams. I'm Kavita Cardoza.
We'll stay in D.C. for this next story, but we'll move south and east to Berry Farms, where neighbors are coming together over alley-oops, slam dunks, and fast breaks. In other words, basketball. The Goodman League consists of about 18 basketball teams that play from June to September. The league draws fans from all over the area, and at most games, right in the front row, you'll find a few devoted fans known as the First Ladies. Jonna McCone and Emily Friedman caught up with several of the ladies, Denise Reeves and sisters Tangie and Taya Travers, as they got ready for a big game. She's... They have all these gold shingles and chains, and you see the design there, and they're so comfortable. It's nothing like, oh, one thing that, that can be challenging is you don't wear heels to the game. I mean, it's just a no-no. The girls who do it, you know they're not regulars. You know they're there to kind of flaunt around. It's a basketball game. Just going to do my makeup and get all ready. Yeah, so I'm going to go with a neutral eye today. Games can have take a toll on your relationship. Right now, we're going through a tough breakup. So anyway, last summer, I kind of like put him on a pedestal, you could almost say, and I have missed a lot of my games. And this summer, I decided that I wasn't going to do that. Ultimately, it was just like, look, maybe we can pick this back up in the winter. Hello. There's my sister. A first lady means that we have been coming down there for one for years. So we kind of earned this title. It's a whole own little world. <laughs> it makes you feel like, you know, you're expected. Your presence is wanted and expected. Hey, D. So she's the original first lady. You can hear she has a raspy voice. This is what we do. We're going to be there. You're going to see us on the front line. When I first went there, I, of course, we didn't have our designated section. I was sitting in the bleachers like with everybody else. I was about 19, 20. It was a social thing for me. The first, <laughs> very first time, yeah. it was like, wow, all these play. people <laughs> in one place having all this fun. But then one day, I won't forget, bow, slam dunking it. To be up close, live and personal, and see somebody jump that high off the ground, it was just like, <gasps> I'm in love. I'm First ladies and the Goodman girls, they are stars in the game. I want my goddamn royalty. Hey, nephew. It's Chucky. Hey, ladies. Yeah. All right. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. So you see now what we're doing now is we're making room. Sometimes people be in our spot, but you see they quickly have to, you know, things have to get rearranged. Nine seconds in the half. My name is Clarence Lindsay, and my name on the basketball court is Showtime. I am the oldest one in the league. I'm at 47, but I feel like I'm 18. And uh, when I get out there on that floor, I feed off my fans. And when you come to see me play, I give you what you're looking for. Stopping pop, second half underway, over the top. So Miles is the guy over here on the mic. He's following the game. He's the commentator. He's the comedian. He's the CEO. He does it all. So right now he's sitting half court directly across from where we sit. So we can go over and say hi to him if you like. I mean, I can look in one section and tell you what these guys will be beefing with each other. And for the three hours or four hours, however long we're in here, all of that is squashed. And they watch basketball and go home and we come back and we do it again. That's, that's the best part. 
love all the players, but then there's ones that don't give us their all. Yeah, we, we, we talk about the kids, the family, but that's how we got to get them excited, get them riled up. It's street ball, so we got to get them street talk. I mean, like, hey, we come out, get out there and run. The court that we're playing on now is like a full NBA Nike-style court. We used to play on hard concrete with chains or no nets, you know, like it came so far, and you got to give your thanks to Miles because if he ever had given up on this league, it wouldn't be where it is today. Everybody's showing us love, and we get that love because of the commitment. I know I feel special. I, like, I have a special place in the gates. We all do. That's our song. This is the theme song. Inside the gates, inside the gates. It's about to go down. For more on the Goodman League and its schedule, as well as pictures of the first ladies, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, we chat with one of our literary neighbors as we continue our new series, Bookend. One of my teachers was asked, why are things so different between this novel and that novel? And her response was, I wanted to do those things. I just hadn't taught myself that. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And this week we're hanging out with friends and neighbors. Earlier in the hour, we heard about a new partnership between farmers and monks, and we visited a space of worship shared by neighbors of different faiths. Well, next we'll meet some neighbors of different nationalities as we kick off our new series, Eating in the Embassy. The series was actually inspired by a friend and neighbor we've featured a few times here on Metro Connection, Eater DC. For the past few months, the food blog's editor, Amy McKeever, has been visiting Washington's embassies to see what it's like to work in an embassy kitchen. And on her most recent visit... All right, so here we are at the Embassy of Chile. Sure are. I tagged along. Should we go inside? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. When Amy and I swung by the Chilean Embassy on Massachusetts Avenue, our first stop wasn't actually the kitchen, but rather... Hi, Rebecca. Rebecca. Rebecca or Becca? Rebecca. The office of the ambassador. Please. Have a seat, please. Felipe Bulnes has been the ambassador of Chile for just four months now. And as he told me and Amy, he loves traditional Chilean foods like fish. I'm very addicted to seafoods. Extra virgin olive oil. I'm obsessed with extra virgin olive oil. And lamb. Rack of lambs are very good as well. We have them from Patagonia. And he adores traditional Chilean dishes like... Empanadas. Or stuffed pastries. Humitas. A kind of Chilean tamale. And we have also a very classic Chilean dish called pastel de choclo. But this is made out of corn and chicken and some egg and some uh, onion. Uh, I am not the one who can, you know, give all the details of the of the recipe, but trust me, it's very good. Well, it just so happens that after interviewing the ambassador, I got to interview the one who not only can give all the details of the recipe, but who can make it, too. Como se llama? Maria del Rosario. 
Gomez. <laughs> Rosario, as she's called, is the chef at the ambassador's residence. The born and bred Chilean is still learning English since she's only been in the U.S. a few months, but she's been cooking as a chef for quite a few years. Como 40. 40 years? Inside the residence's spacious white kitchen, Rosario demonstrates how to make the pastel de choclo, which is kind of like a corn pie. And you fill it with chicken, hard-boiled egg, and onion, as the ambassador says. And also raisins and olives. As the ambassador's wife, Monica Pellegrini, says. And as Rosario says, the final filling is something called pino. Es una, como una misturación de carne y Meat and onion. Which you'll find in other Chilean dishes too, like empanadas. Which, by the way, Rosario plans to make 500 of come Chile's Independence Day celebration on September 18th. That's a lot of empanadas. Muchas. Muchas empanadas. But anyway, back to the pastel de choclo. Once you've got all the fillings in, you cover them with this creamy puree of corn and basil. She put some salt in this mixture of corn and basil because here in the States the corn is sweeter than in Chile. Instead of salt, you put sugar in Chile. <laughs> then you pop the pastel in the oven, bake it until it's golden brown. And then it's ready. And you can eat it <laughs> right away. Which, incidentally, mm. is precisely what I do. Oh, I like it a lot. And I wash it all down with some Chilean red wine. Salud. Salud. Another Chilean edible that Ambassador Felipe Bonne says sets his country apart. I think there's no a good food if you don't have a Chilean wine on your side. And trust me, I have tried all kinds of wines, and so I know from my heart that I'm giving you a wonderful advice. Okay. The ambassador enjoys sharing his beloved Chilean cuisine with others in D.C. every time the embassy holds an event, like the recent reception for Robert Zellick, former head of the World Bank. We're always trying to see Chile is not only a country that is determined to be developed by the end of this decade, but, but also we have a wonderful cuisine and it's gaining space as, as time goes by. It's another window for people to get a sense of what Chile means. And good food, he says, is a good way to get to know any country, from its heart to its soul to, yes, its stomach. Muchos amigos, algunos vecinos, me voy caminando a tu casa. Muchos amigos, algunos vecinos, me voy caminando a tu casa. Thanks to Eater DC for helping us launch our new series, Eating in the Embassy. Stay tuned to future installments to hear where we eat next. In the meantime, if you're having a hankering for a little pastel de choclo right about now, you can find our recipe on our website, metroconnection.org. It's about 4,000 miles from Chile's capital, Santiago, to Cuba's capital, Havana. The latter is the birthplace of the man we'll meet next as we present Bookend, our monthly conversation with local writers about D.C.'s literary scene. 
This month, Jonathan Wilson met with H.G. Carrillo. Carrillo's first novel, Losing My Spanish, focuses on the struggles of Chicago's Cuban-American community. And as we're about to hear, his second novel, which he's putting the finishing touches on now, promises to be very different. Jonathan often asks writers to meet him someplace where they like to write or that they find inspiring. So Carrillo suggested meeting outside the National Gallery of Art. I did a lot of training as a critic. I did a lot of training as a creative writing writer. And we're often talking about words in a specific sense. But actually what we're looking to do is to actually suspend an emotive state through time or move an emotive state through time. And so it's one of those things that takes me away from the word. It takes me away from the idea that that words are my only vehicle. And novels, you know, encompass worlds. You know, they should encompass an entire world. And, and a world has smells and sights and sounds and all of these other things. And if we get hung up on words, we're kind of stuck on this kind of Oh, kind of prescriptive um, diagnostic kind of thing that actually and you know now you know we have novels that are completely comprised of you know adverbs and adjectives and we're supposed to know how people feel so how long have you been teaching writing I think that's an interesting not all writers are, are teachers how, do, how does that fit into what you do well you know it's one of those things that you want to have a conversation or discussion with people and I before I taught, I actually worked for television and I wanted to have conversations with adults about books and about writing and I thought, well, probably the easiest way would to be, you know, to go back to school and to train so that I could actually teach and talk to adults about books. Books and writing and art is a conversation and so that if you can begin to tell people about how those conversations happen, about how that kind of discourse works, then it's a, it's a particular kind of training that uh, I think actually helps. I don't know that it's necessarily specific to writing, but it's specific to talking about writing as an art form. To be honest and fair about it, we're not a city that is recognized as a, an art center compared to some other cities. You've been a lot of other places, Buenos Aires, right. um, places in, in the United States. What do you think about D.C. when you're thinking about it as a place to find inspiration? I like it here. I really do. I, I, I like it here. There's, there's something so cosmopolitan yet provincial at the same time about D.C. that is ultimately lovely. You know, it's ultimately lovely. And, I mean, I, I, I lived in Chicago for a very long time. Um, I worked for television, so I spent a lot of time in Manhattan. And it's nice to have just, just enough that, you know... and. To also have anonymity. I lived in Ithaca, New York for seven years, and I had no anonymity. I mean, I couldn't walk out of my, you know, I was told, I was told by my mentor, it's, you know, this is not one of those places you leave your house weeping. Um, one of the neighborhood knows about it. Here, you know, there, it, there's just an, enough anonymity, but there's also enough um, familiarity that, you know, you feel comfortable. So your first novel was Loosing My Spanish, right. uh, published in 2004. Right. What are you working on now, um, and, and how does it compare, if that's a fair word? Maybe not, but, but how is it different? It basically looks at the idea of um, Cubans in America, but the idea of the notion of terrorism, and when we're in this, this post- you know, the, this kind of new idea of how we respond to terrorism. 
and the idea that within a certain portion faction of the Cuban community, within a certain portion of government, that that if Castro were to die a natural death, then we've failed or we've lost in some sort of way. And that this is kind of changing and it's kind of, you know, looking at it. And it, it, it cites itself on, of course, 9-11, but also a plane that was downed that left um, Havana going to, well, it was suspected that it, that uh, Castro was on the plane and seven people organized to have the plane blown up. Seventy-six people were killed in this 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 plane this plane disaster, and three of the people were given sanction in the United States. Two of them are still alive here, and I had an opportunity to interview them for the novel and to kind of have this idea of U.S. sanctioned terrorism that you know is perfectly seems to be perfectly fine. H.G. Carrillo, author of *Losing Maya Spanish*. The assistant professor of English at George Washington University, and also the author of a forthcoming novel that we hope we will see soon. Thank you for making time for us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. To hear H.G. Carrillo reading some of his work and to hear his thoughts on authors he thinks deserve more attention, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have an idea for a writer we ought to feature on Bookend, let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org, or you can send us a tweet. Our handle is WAMU Metro. El concepto de lo diferente es algo que existe desde que el mundo es mundo. now our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Forest Hills in Northwest D.C. and Cheverly, Maryland. I'm Dan Smith. I'm 61 years old and live in Cheverly, Maryland. We've lived in Cheverly for over 26 years now. Cheverly is in Prince George's County, just east of Washington, D.C. We're the first stop on the Orange Line outside of the district. When people are driving out of D.C., you have a decision to make. You can go on Route 50 to Annapolis and the beaches, or you can go on the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. Chevrolet is right in between those two major highways. So Chevrolet is really a small town in a big metropolitan area with a population of, I think, around 6,000 people. We have a number of just active groups, Parent Resource Center, a babysitting co-op, Chevrolet Day every spring is a, a fun celebration. And then there's another structure of just um, some informal, maybe just traditions. Once a month, there's an informal potluck. And I think we just celebrated the 20th year. We were a pioneer in the area of having comprehensive recycling. And so because of the awareness of the importance of the environment, we now have a volunteer group that put together a green infrastructure plan for the town so that in the future, people can still find this to be a great oasis in the larger urban metropolitan area. My name is Virginia Adams Marantet, and I live in the Forest Hills neighborhood of Washington, D.C. 
which I must say is actually an appropriate name for this neighborhood because my four-year-old son does call it going into the forest when we drive down the hill of our street down into Rock Creek Park. Forest Hills is a neighborhood that is between Connecticut Avenue and Rock Creek Park and is situated between Cleveland Park and Chevy Chase. There are certainly some favorite gathering spots. One of the best independent bookstores in the country is in Forest Hills Politics and Prose. We're also adjacent to Rock Creek Park, and so there are obviously lots of picnics and lots of hikes, and you can go ride a horse and go to the planetarium at the Nature Center. Harry Truman lived in Forest Hills when he was vice president to FDR. And when FDR passed away, Harry Truman was summoned to the White House. He was sworn in as president of the United States and then returned home to his condominium on Connecticut Avenue his first night as president. The thing I love about this neighborhood is that we are in the middle of the city, but yet it has a very suburban feel to it because we have a single family home, there are large trees, but yet we're near the Connecticut Avenue corridor and all that city life has to offer. We heard from Virginia Marantet in Forest Hills and Dan Smith in Cheverly. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Friedman, Martin DeCaro, Jonna McCone, Jonathan Wilson, and Kavitha Cardoza, along with reporter Heather Taylor. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Jessica Officer and Rafaela Benin. Jonna McCone, Lauren Landau, Rafaela Benin, and Jessica Officer produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production on the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be feeling the heat. We'll meet a local scientist who specializes in solar storms. We'll talk with workers who are feeling the heat over potential pink slips. And we'll hit the lab to check out the latest research on fire. It comes down to I'm being paid to study fire. And 10-year-old me would absolutely love that job. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.